Now, we're going to specifically, in a moment, look in Genesis 3. And it's interesting, though, that fear does have its positive side to it. There's a healthy function that fear plays in our lives. Uh, it's basically an innate emotion that we don't have to be taught. It is a perceived threat that releases something in our brain and triggers something that says, beware. And on the positive side, it's fear that can keep a child from playing in the street when they see a car go by. It's some type of fear that can lead an adult to make wise choices about their health. Maybe the fear of this disease that will come upon you if you don't do A, B, or C. Fear played a healthy role in my life uh, later uh, this, this past week when I took my sister and brother-in-law out to Apopka and to the Kelly Park Rock Springs area. It's that beautiful spring where you sit in a tube and you go down a little bit way, uh, way in this really cool creek area and then you get out and you walk your tube way back up this pathway. As we're getting out, there's a lifeguard there. And he says, guys, be careful because we just saw a black bear on that trail back there, so keep your eyes open. <laughs> and I'm waiting for my chopper to come, you know. <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking, as I'm walking with my family and all these kids, I'm thinking of what are the things I've heard about bears through the years? My mind is racing with make a loud noise, no, don't do that, get in there, no, be quiet, all, all these things. And I was getting confused on how I was going to respond, but fear kept me on my toes as we missed the bear that day. Fear does serve a healthy function in our life to a degree, but it's interesting to note scripturally very little is said positively about the role of fear in our spiritual lives. Why? Because the Lord knows us and he sees that fear is something that the enemy often uses in our life to move us and tempt us toward disobedience. As we'll see in the story today, fear is something that can be alienating in our relationship with God. And so we see Admonition after admonition to give your fears to the Lord. The classic passage on fear in Isaiah chapter 41 verse 10. Many of you know where it, the Lord says, Do not fear for I am with you. Do not be dismayed for I am your God. I'll strengthen you and help you and uphold you with my righteous right hand. We see in the Bible reasons not to fear. And so as we look at different passages on becoming fearless today, we're going to go right back to the beginning where the first negative emotion ever recorded in the history of the world is seen in the Garden of Eden, and it just so happens to be that of fear. As we talk about getting a grasp on fear today, we're going to look at chapter 3 and talk about the fall of man. Uh, if you read the first two chapters, we are always encouraged to remember that God is our creator. We are not accidents. It is not randomness plus time plus chance equals life. Non-life doesn't beget life. And 
everything doesn't come from nothing. Everything comes from the very mouth of the living God that spoke this world into existence. And his crowning creation was, of course, mankind. And as Adam was created by God, then Eve from Adam's rib, we see an incredible picture of marriage at the end of chapter 2. And as God made a beautiful place for man and woman to dwell in the Garden of Eden, our God is not the God of rules that he is sometimes made out to be. Are you ever told that by people that says, I don't want any of that religion that you've got. All it is is a big long list of do's and don'ts. And yes, sometimes we make it that way, but that's not the real heart of God. Matter of fact, when God created this beautiful place for man and woman to live, he gave them one rule. And it was a simple one. Do not eat from that tree in the middle, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Eat to your heart's content from that tree, that tree, that tree, and that tree. But leave that one alone. Well, as we see the genesis of fear in chapter 3, we have something that we call in theological terms the fall of man. It's sometimes as... It seems like we're told that man can do anything, and man is on his way up. But the Bible describes man in a fallen, broken state. Now, this particular story in, in verses 1 through 6, it, it speaks of the entry of sin into the world. And any time we do what Eve did and get into a conversation, so to speak, with Satan, we give credibility to a lie and if you've ever been in a conversation with someone that is a very very good liar after a while a lie begins to sound like truth and she goes and finds her husband in verse six and says you know what adam <laughs> that tree we're supposed to not eat from guess what it's actually good for us God said that we, wouldn't, we shouldn't eat from it. But this little talking serpent guy I ran into in the garden said it's really good. That our, everything we've been wanting is found in the pursuit of eating that fruit. So here you go, Adam. Chomp without a word. Isn't that really one poor thing about men? You give us something to eat and we start eating without asking questions, you know? No kind of spiritual oversight involved, no kind of responsibility that he took up to take care of his wife and ask questions and be discerning. Just, I'm hungry, boom, let's eat. Now, we see in verse 6, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Now, uh, the first principle this morning about getting a grasp on fear involves, number one, on your outline, the diagnosis of fear. And maybe you've had a frustrating experience along with your medical professional about not being able to diagnose something you've been struggling with. Well, we don't have to have that frustration today about fear. We know that before the fall of man, there was perfect freedom in the garden. Can you imagine a place with absolutely no fear? 
How beautiful this place is. And it will be like the song we just heard, like the new Jerusalem one day, where there will be the absence of the presence of fear. But this, this story tells us something about how fear exists, and that's this, that fear is ultimately the result of sin. No sin, no fear. Now, it is a little bit tricky because there are some sins that we personally commit that add to our fear. It multiplies our fear when we tell a lie because we have to look over our shoulder making sure that no one's going to find us out. If we take something that is not ours, we're afraid of being caught. If we brag on ourselves and become arrogant and boastful, we're afraid that we have to live up to the person we have claimed to be. If we've hurt someone, we're afraid of the repercussions that can come back to us about others getting revenge on us. So certain sins we commit, they increase our fear. It's not to say that every fear you have is a result of your own personal choice of sin. Sometimes the fears we struggle with are because of the existence of sin in the world or maybe sins that were committed to us by others. But nonetheless, they are connected to sin itself. And so in our battle with fear of us seeking to replace fear with faith, we've got to be conscious of our battle with sin. You see, the penalty of sin is covered for by the blood of Jesus. So if you know Christ, you are forgiven of sin. But unfortunately, we still have that sinful nature within us that Christ dwells within our lives and we seek to say no to the sin by the power of the Holy Spirit daily. And I would add that to the degree that we are able to say no to sin, we will also see an increase at being able to say goodbye to fear because they are always related, fear and sin. Now we quickly see something else that helps us grasp fear a little bit better, and that's number two on the outline, and that involves the results of fear. The first one hits us uh, right away in verse 7, and that's this alienation from others. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. It was the quickest thing they could find when all of a sudden, they're, in verse 25, it says they were naked and felt no shame. In other words, there was a perfect intimacy and closeness between them. They were incredibly comfortable around each other. But sin came into their relationship, and all of a sudden, there's pretension. All of a sudden, they're not that comfortable around each other. They may have been afraid of what they would do to one another. Have you ever noticed how alienating fear is in a relationship? Often in marriages, and something that keeps marriages from happening, is the fear of commitment. Sometimes our relationships get weaker because we have a fear of, hurt, of hurting and being hurt. There is a fear of intimacy. I'm afraid to get too close to you because... You might find what I am really like, and I might find what you're really like, and I don't know that I really want that. And so fear keeps us distant from each other. There was a perfect closeness that fear came in, and they made a poor attempt at becoming more comfortable around each other. The saddest part of the story is 
what happens when fear enters into our relationship with God because B, a second result of fear, is an alienation from God. In verse 8 it says, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and so I hid. There's had to be an incredible closeness between Adam and Eve and the living God. And all of a sudden, one fatal choice. Sin enters the world, death enters the picture, and there is a complete alienation between man and God. They were completely uncomfortable around each other. All of a sudden, Adam couldn't look his maker in the eyes anymore. I remember when I was uh, five or six years old, I tried my hand a few times at lying to my father. I fortunately never got very skilled at it because I hated the way it felt. I loved being close to my dad, and if I told him a fib or a whopper, I did not want to see him. I couldn't bear to look at him. Maybe I was afraid of being found out. Maybe I was just ashamed of what I had said. Adam feels the same way. The one who literally gave him life, that gave him everything. All of a sudden, he's hiding from him. Now, we see the foolishness of him hiding from someone who has creative power, who has all sovereignty and might. You know, Fear is foolish because, uh, hiding from God is foolish because, one, it can't be done, but two, it increases our misery. Alienating ourselves from God is something that just increases our, our own inner turmoil, but it's something that we do when we listen to the counsel of our fears. How do we respond to fear? What is number three in your outline? What is our reaction to fear? We see several in the story, as we just mentioned, A, running from God. We're afraid. Uh, You remember what it's like when your mom and dad told you not to play with the ball in the house. And they mentioned something about a vase in the corner. Yet you wanted to play ball in the house and they weren't around and they would never find out. And it turned out mom and dad really had some sense about them because when you played ball in the house, boom, crash. And didn't it seem like it always happened when that crash occurred that there was always the garage door that was about to come up? (laughs) Or maybe that front door? And what are you going to do? You're going to do like any red-blooded child's going to do. You do the sensible thing, and that is run, run, run. (laughs) You run as far and as fast away as you can. That's a natural reaction that we have. Now, some things may be understandable to run from. I remember one summer when I was a university student and I was doing uh, summer missions. I was on a team where we would speak and do revival services at small churches out in East Texas. And the music guy and I were staying in a home that week. We were picked up at the church. We were taken by the young man of the house to their home. And as we're nearing this house, he said, we have a dog, by the way. Well, great. What's, What's Rover's name? He said, well... Let me tell you about our dog. Matter of fact, we arrived at the house. He goes, you need to stay in the car. It was just when that movie in the 80s came out called Cujo, about that mean dog. 
And he goes and gets two little balls and says, come here, buddy. And this massive Doberman Pinscher comes around the corner. He starts playing with the balls and keeps the dog in the other part of the yard. And he real quietly says, listen, guys, get your bags and walk toward the house and go inside. I mean, we're nervous as a cat in a room full of rockers at this point, wondering what had happened to your last preacher that stayed at your house. <laughs> Every day when we came to the house, the same thing happened. The balls were there. He would get the balls and take the dog out there. We would walk inside slowly. One day, guess what happened? A fateful thing happened. Those little balls that were our key to safety weren't there. He goes, well, I don't see him. Let's just walk to the house. We walked to the house. Unfortunately, Cujo was in the corner of the garage. He had a particular distaste for me. He began looking at me, coming toward me. And I'm about from here to the front door is right where Charlie is sitting right there. And I saw him kind of look fiercely at me, and I ran for the house. And my memory says that I escaped within an inch of my life. You know, he came running for me and just... Now, the good thing was is that dog was in timeout for the rest of the week. <laughs> they locked it up because I guess they were pro our life or something like that. But some things may make sense to run from, but God makes no sense for us to keep increasing our misery from something that we will never, ever be successful at. We can't outrun the love of God, the eye of God, the sovereignty of God, the mercy of God the judgment of God we must face. But fear does something to our spiritual psyche that says you will succeed if only you run and don't look back. That's why we've got to get fear on the, in the right healthy place in our life. You see, fear will always come knocking at our door. We just simply must not let it in. Invite it over for dinner and give it a bed for the night. It will fill our world, but it doesn't have to fill our heart. We see a, another result or reaction of fear that we often have is B in this story, and that is blaming other people. In verse 11, the Lord asks an interesting question to Adam and says, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from that tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Once again, God having perfect knowledge of the situation is trying to get Adam to deal honestly and soundly with his choices and Adam does what we often begin to do. He starts pointing the finger. The man says, the woman that you put here with me. In other words, there are two guilty parties here, Lord. It begins with you. <laughs> and secondly, it's that gal there. You made her, right? And she handed me this apple. I was having a perfect day, and this forbidden fruit came my way. And he goes on to say, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. It's interesting that he even added at the end that he ate it. It almost sounds like she opened his mouth and then put his mouth head together and made him chew. But at least he admitted that he ate it. Eve was not going to be outdone in verse 13. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is it you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate it. In other words, I was also duped, and I was also taken aback and the responsibility here lord should be on that talking serpent man he's good he really let me have it and it's really sort of his fault 
Kind of reminds me of a t-shirt one of my boys had. It has an arrow pointing to somebody. and It says, okay, I admit it, he did it. <laughs> we like to point the finger and pass the blame. And that's what we do with fear. We like to blame others in our past for our struggles with fear and others who are making unwise choices as to why we're so afraid. Maybe if this person hadn't done that or if this person hadn't thought that, I wouldn't be so crippled and gripped by this fear where the Lord wants us to come to the place of owning up and saying, Lord, I'm afraid, I'm struggling, I need you. A third reaction we often have to fear is see, and that's concealing the truth. Rather than being honest before God, they passed the blame to others. I also find it interesting in verse 10 where he's answering the Lord and says, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. I don't think that was the real reason he was afraid. Maybe it was frightening, but he was really afraid because he'd sinned against God. And he wanted to conceal the real reason for his inner tremors. I remember several years ago when everybody was younger in the house, number two had done something to vex or annoy or injure number five in our house. And I could hear a blood-curdling scream, and I went upstairs to see what was wrong, and number five confirmed what I had suspected. And I went into the room of number two, and guess what he was doing? He was on his bed reading his Bible. He looked at me as if to say, yes, Father? Make it quick, because I'm getting into the Word of God. He was wanting to conceal his real deviousness. And sometimes that's our reaction. Anything but being honest with God. Sometimes it's not vogue to say to anyone, I'm afraid of this. And somehow we have that same inhibition toward our Lord and can't come clean before him and ask him for our help for his help with our fears now what I appreciate about the story so much is number four and that's God's response to our fear I do want to point out that the the real issue in the fall of man is not repairing fear it is dealing with the problem of sin and so we see the main issue is that sin separates us from God, and we are now in need of a Savior. But in doing so, in dealing with that main problem, the main problem of sin, it has a secondary effect on our battle with fear. And A, under number four, about God's response to fear, the first one that I find most beautiful and helpful is that He pursues us. If you look back at verse 8, was God walking or running? He's walking. In other words, he's not furious with Adam, though he should be. It would make sense for him to be so. Was it at the dead of night that he came pursuing him? No, it was the cool of the day. And this sense you get from his voice, Adam, where are you, is not someone screaming. It's been said that the most beautiful sound is the sound of a human voice, much less the voice of the living God who made you, who loves you, that now is coming, who wants to restore you into 
himself. And God is the one that pursues us in our struggle with sin and wants us to come to repent of our sin and come to know him personally. And then he pursues us to live a life that's not shackled by sin and governed by fear. He's the pursuer in our relationship with him. One of the things that I was asking my brother-in-law about this week is how he was doing after an accident that he had, an auto accident he had in Ethiopia. One of the laws of their land is that the victim is in control of the process. Oftentimes, um, people walk out in front of cars without paying attention. And one person did that to my brother-in-law this year and was hit by him. And uh, there was not a serious long-term injury. There was some type of settlement he had to go through and some uh, rigorous processes. But had that person not survived, my brother-in-law could have been in serious legal trouble. As he thought through the implications of what that meant for his life, he admitted to me that he really began to wrestle with fear. All of us would. It would be understandable. At the same time, that fear wanted to dictate about God's calling for his life. If you're afraid that what you're doing could lead you to get in trouble and endanger your family, you might just be tempted to throw it all away. God began pursuing and calming and taking Alan's fears. Instead of a verse that so encouraged him was Psalm 34, verse 4, that says, I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and he, listen to this, delivered me from all of my fears have you been delivered from your fears that vex you by the god who is walking in the cool of the day trying to find you from underneath that little bitty bush that you think will protect you from him he's coming after you with love with mercy with forgiveness but i also appreciate this about god fair but firm we find another reaction a response to fear from God is B, is that he holds us accountable. Verses 14 through 19 is the doling out process from the Lord to Adam and Eve and the serpent for their poor actions. Now, we've all awaited a punishment phase of a trial that was a major television trial, and we've wondered, is this punishment going to fit the crime? Sometimes Rarely, it seems an extreme punishment for a small crime. More commonly, it seems like a small punishment for a major crime. This is the latter in this particular story. You see, the living God made man, gave them one rule, and essentially man and woman looked God in the face and said, that is not enough freedom you've given us. We want to do our own thing. And so the living God has been completely disrespected. And so the judgment awaits. What will the Lord do? He could have obliterated man. He could have wiped him out from the face of the earth. He does uh, be on our outline. He does hold us accountable. But the punishment he gives them seems incredibly small. He gives a curse to the serpent. He tells the woman that you're always going to be scrapping with man. Your desire will be for your husband, and then he will come over you. He will overpower you. 
It does say, I do say this as one who has never experienced this, it does say women will have great pain in childbirth. Don't mean to belittle that. I have seen it five times and experienced it none. It looks incredibly painful. But does that punishment fit this crime? And then in verse 17 and 18 and 19, it, it, it talks about the plight of our existence, that our eking out a living will be toil. Sometimes we ask ourselves, why is it so hard to make ends meet? Why is it so hard just to make it in this life? Well, it's a result of sin. And yes, life is hard, and earning a living and being alive is a difficult thing, but at least we're alive. God could have wiped us off the face of the earth, and he holds us accountable with our sin, with our fear, and doesn't just say, hey, do whatever you want to do. He holds us accountable as we come before him and deal with our fear, but he does something incredible in verse 20, and that's C on your outline this morning, and that is this, he saves us. Now, in verse 15, the Lord basically gives the first gospel that it says that the seed of Eve, which is likely in that verse a reference to Jesus Christ, will crush the serpent on his head. In other words, Jesus, through his death, will defeat the power of the enemy. And so in thinking of that, Adam, in verse 20, it says this of him, Adam named Eve, because she would become the mother of all the living. At that point, Adam's going, you know, the Lord just said that she's going to have seed. He could have killed us all, but she's going to be fruitful, and something great's going to happen from what God does in her womb. He believed that, and in response to belief, the Lord says, you know what those fig leaves? They're not going to cut it. In verse 21 the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. God himself clothed them. Many feel that this is a foreshadowing of the cross because it says in Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. In order for them to have animal skins on their body, there was a shedding of blood, sort of a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ who would become the Lamb of God that the Bible says clothes us in his righteousness. Adam and Eve were clothed with skin for a moment, but we, when we come to the place where we receive what Christ has done for us with the shedding of his blood, we're clothed in his own forgiveness and his mercy and his righteousness. And God could take us trembling souls and banish us. Instead, he gave his son for us and he saves us. Incredible things continue to happen to Adam and Eve even though they disobeyed it says in verse 22, when the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil, he must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Many feel that there's a second tree that now God is keeping him away from. It's not the tree of knowledge of good and evil, it's the tree of life. If they're now to eat from this tree, because now that they know the knowledge of good and evil, they might live forevermore alienated from God. Many feel that he's preserving them, wanting them to hold on to their mortality so they wouldn't be some kind of being like the fallen angel named Lucifer. And so he keeps them out of this beautiful garden of Eden. He sends them to the bad part of town on the east side, he says. In verse 23, so the Lord God banished them from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he'd been taken. 
After he drove them out, he placed them on the east side of the Garden of Eden. Cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. So there's this other tree that was okay to eat if you didn't know good and evil. But now that they've eaten of the knowledge of good and evil, they can't be around this tree of life. And so God places an angel with a flaming sword that says, back away, Adam and Eve, you all are dangerous. Isn't it wise and good of the Lord to keep us from ourselves? Yes, we are given a basic sense of moral free agency, and yes, trials are allowed to happen to us, but we'd be amazed at the hand of God of what all he has held back from us, even though we may have experienced much. The living God moves us, convicts us, brings people and circumstances in our life to protect us from ourselves and our own poor choices that deliver us from sin and ultimately deliver us from fear. And so the last principle about God's response to our fear is that D, He looks out for us. (laughs) This morning, maybe some of you have had a long-held fear in your life, a fear of losing control. And, and maybe the place where you have held on to control is in this area of salvation. You are determined that by your own performance you will save yourself. But the good news of the gospel is that we can't save ourselves, that Jesus has died for the payment of our sins and will come and clothe us in his righteousness if we place our faith in him. Maybe some of you have done that, yet you still live a life that seems to be governed and dominated by fear. Remember the truth today about how God is protecting us from running from him, and he's pursuing us with his love. Will you receive his pursuit as he walks to you in the cool of the day, calling your name? As we consider this powerful story and how it relates to our world in Central Florida in 20. 14, I'd like us to take a moment and bow together. And as we're bowed before him, what will your response be to him? Have you come to the place in your life where you've personally trusted Christ for salvation? Let today be the day. Oh, living Lord, this story.